I'm recording. This is we're going, so we'll okay. see what happens. So you've got some nice ambient noise for the beginning of our uh, the beginning of our recording. Our right. Be- this is our pre-roll. Yeah, this it's is our, the pre-roll. Our ambient chatter pre-roll. Right. We get any feedback, Joe? <laughs> there have been some emails. There have been some tweets. Yeah. We'll do uh, that next week, though. I guess we're I'm not gonna... going to do that. We're, we, we'll have time next week. We have a guest next week, but we also could have some time to do a little bit of feedback. We can. We can have a four-hour show. Oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Oh, is this? Why are we having a four-hour show? We could. I'm just saying we could. We could if we wanted the to. Format, that, the format allows. Freedom, but the format allows. I don't. I would prefer that we not do that. I'm just assuming this is not going to go in, but you think this should go in. I think you could use part of this. Sure, you could cut it in, right? I'm, it's all or nothing. That's just, not just just like the statute. We're going to talk. About. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true, man. You can edit. Ah, I don't want to edit. You could like cut out a chunk. I, I'm backing away from my these levels. Are, this is impossible. It's right. not. It's not. It's not. Um, I'm just looking at this thing. I'm just staring. It's at not like waveforms. many many micro edits. It's a big chop. This is now a big part of my day to day life. Staring at waveforms. Is what? Staring, staring at waveforms. Yeah. You know what we need? We need some kind of AI that's basically crisper for audio. Ooh. And goes in and like snips and snips. We need to have. Um, we need to have. Um, Jacob Shurko on to talk about CRISPR. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. That'd be, that'd be awesome. I'd, yeah. I do think we need that to do that. That is some scary stuff. Exciting. Yes, in the way that scary things can often be very exciting. CRISPR or CRISPIST? <laughs> <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> are we going to be introduced or not? I don't know. I feel Paul, like we should just start. Do we just start or is it, are we going to be introduced? Oh, here comes Mike. Okay. Oh, we don't need name tags. We're waiting for something? Okay. I love it. It's just like in the program. It's got your name, and then it has Joe and quotes. I know. It makes me wish that I'd included a middle name or something, like a the. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Mad Dog. Christian Mad Dog Turner. No, that's taken. <laughs> he I don't said, know. He said as soon as he gives us the go-ahead, we can start. Oh, so no... Hey, Mike, no introduction? Just jump we don't right need in. one. We don't need one. I just want to know when to go. Okay. All right. Go. All right, I guess we're going to get started. Is that how we do it? Is that... <laughs> what? what? We're going to get started? We Are we? Yeah, okay. we got... We, he gave a, a finger okay. gesture of some kind. <laughs> when we, people give me the finger, I get started. We've been given the finger. It's time to get started. Uh, oh, are you going to help? Okay. You, you've realized we were incompetent to call the room to order. Yeah, exactly. All right. Oh, I should have... All right, we're, we're going to get started now. Uh, <laughs> we, we don't have an amplifying mic. Though, we so. do. So this is our 20th year at the Tech Law Institute. <laughs> is that, in this room, is that yes. right? I'm sure in like some base number you can get to 20 from 3. Oh, that's, that is our kind of humor. Yeah. It's <laughs> number bases and everything. Yeah. So we're going to talk about data today. Aren't we in general like data? And the law. <laughs> <laughs> There's some law in there, right? I guess so. Um... See, this is, this is what we do, and for some reason, they keep inviting us back. Uh, yeah, we got the show called Oral Argument. This is, this is our episode 149 of the show. But we have an episode zero, so really, it's episode 150. So there's a milestone, is what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so I thought, so we're going to talk about, you know, we, we distributing the materials, this really cool article by... Um, Paul Schwartz. Paul Schwartz. Uh, Professor at Berkeley. And at the time, we picked to 
at, at the time that we were kind of going through and saying what would be interesting for this audience, like it wasn't, it didn't occur to me that this would actually be the subject of a major Supreme Court case uh, this term, and and it is. So we're going to get to that as of this week. Um, I thought though, it I did, we didn't talk about this. Okay. But I thought we should start by talking about our drive here this morning. Oh, and okay. our relationship with data. Ah, yes. So, okay. do you want to tell the story? No. <laughs> uh, I'm more interested to hear how you depict the story. Mm. It was a what the fight was about. There was a fight. <laughs> there was and no it was fight. a fight. It was a fight in the car. There was no that fight. I was driving. No fight. And uh, so, so one question is, um, or the question maybe is, how do you interact with the guidance that the navigation system? is giving you. I, so we could throw it out to the room. You're in Athens, Georgia, uh, and, or, or it, could be, it could be anywhere, and you have to get to Atlanta, right? And you have to get to uh, downtown Atlanta. Right. Um, how do you do that? Do you, do you, for me, like, I don't know what's going on in Atlanta that day. Let me I add something. And you start from a place that you usually don't depart from. You're departing from a less familiar departure point so you might not know the most efficient route from that point. I was it's gonna, not the place you usually leave from. I was going to omit the part where we traveled in the opposite direction until you got to your <laughs> usual starting point. But, but it was, but it was about that's what it was about, right? Is that I, I wanted I wanted to drive yeah. in the, on the route that I felt familiar with. I was going to get there, even if the guidance system was telling me go do something else. And it wasn't the guidance system telling me, by the way. It was him. <laughs> he was saying, "You turn around right now." <laughs> And I said, that is not going to happen. I'm seeing the little blue dot go, like, Atlanta's, Atlanta's over here. We're over there. And I'm seeing the blue dot go off this way, like, you know, traveling the opposite. That seems right. weird to me. Now, so, how is this so the about upshot is, it's about data because it's about, like, uh, um, you know, when I'm going somewhere, I will type in these days. So I'll just type in where I'm going, especially if it's uh, to the city and I don't know what traffic is like. I, like, I trust it a lot more than I trust my own, like... I've been to Atlanta a bunch. I could get here. I could drive here. But I don't know what the best way to get here is, right? So, and, if, and, and as we talked about, like, if I'm really pressed for time, I'll actually type it into uh, Apple Maps, to Google Maps, and Waze. So just, you can compare. Just to compare and see, like, does, yeah. one of these, does one of these guys have an idea that the other doesn't have? Yeah. Like, who's, for what? traffic data and real-time right. updates and, yeah. And you will just say, I'm going to travel on roads with which I'm familiar. Yes. That was a theme I returned to repeatedly during this argument that we had. Um, that I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to have the guidance system send me on a route I don't know. Because now, on top of, I'm trying to get where I'm going. I'm dealing in my head with where the heck am I? Right? I've never been on this road before. I don't know much about it. If a problem Joe. arises, I don't. I won't know what my options are. So I like to use the road that I'm familiar so with. So I've been sent from Athens to Atlanta before on weird roads because both 85 and I 20 are both like jammed with traffic, yeah. and so send me in different directions. And you have and this joy of fortuity. <laughs> And I am I live a veil of tears. I have no joy of fortuity. I go on the routes that I know. And so we talked about this that for Joe, like the cognitive impact of worrying about like I don't understand it, but if he's on a road that he doesn't know, he's anxious. More like, anxious than if I'm me, on a road like, I do know. I'm like this is a this is it's not like this is a path re- you know recently, you know, created by some pioneer. This is a a road in the United States. It's probably it's going to These know, are go all good where, points. Um so I, how many of you like do if you're going somewhere that you know, like, I don't know, uh, you're, you're all in Atlanta, so, I don't know, many people travel from one place to another in Atlanta, and that's like a little road trip in and of itself sometimes, right? I've, so, I've been told, yeah. So, uh, um, how, how many of you just know the way you go, you go without thinking about, how many, uh, how many do that? Let's just get a show of hands. And how many people will routinely, like, type the destination in? Yeah, so there's a, there's a division. Yeah. The room is divided just like we are. And I think if you type in the destination, 
and you learn from the guidance system a route that gets you there, that's in a sense awesome because you, you have a route to go now and, and in the absence of that, like I don't want to go back to the days of paper maps, as fun as I think maps are. I don't want to go back to the days of paper maps. Um, but also, I think you all are kind of nuts um, to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to have this thing tell you where to go. Like you should have some independent basis for thinking that. And this, and this is all about some trusting us, the data and the systems that manipulate and process data or not. Some of us are used to being told where to go. <laughs> but, so, <laughs> right, right. So it works, it works out. Um, yeah, so this is about our relationship to data. I thought it was a good story to get started because it is about like how how you personally interact with it, like what you think right. of it is doing for you. And, and I bet and all of us interact with different data systems in different ways. Yeah, like there, I'm sure I'm not. I'm sure I'm more trusting of some of systems than of other systems. Um, and and I don't know. Maybe you are just sort of blindly trusting maximally blindly. of all these systems. Blindly, right? Yeah. So I'm jacked in. I, I don't know, I don't uh, but. Uh, but this is probably true for everyone here, that depending on the system we're talking about, your comfort level with it, what it's telling you to do, how you think about what you should trust and not trust, mm -hmm. uh, and how data are being processed, presented, and all that, you can vary in your opinion about that. And, and do you conceive of yourself when you're traveling around as conveying location information to cell phone towers that you are just like, well, that's for people to collect and do what they want with. <laughs> well, this is the issue in one of the cases. One of the cases, not the, the one that, we, that is the subject of the, of the no, reading the one, that we did. The one that's, a, that, that's uh, talked about in the article uh, that we provided you, although at the time that was written by Professor Schwartz, it was not known that the Supreme Court would, would hear the case, and now they are going to hear it. This is U.S. against Microsoft. Um, well, you know, a name that's been given to cases in the past about antitrust, but is now about uh, producing data in response to a, war a warrant from the United States. Uh, uh, the, the other case is, what is the? Carpenter. Carpenter is the one about uh, cell phone tower data, right? Cell phone antenna data, site data, um, uh, also in re uh, response to a warrant, right? Or not. They didn't get a warrant, but they still want the I data. I don't write as much about the case. The, yeah. the cell phone company, I think the, there it's, it's whether or not you need a warrant at all, and the, uh, and the government's position is you don't. Uh, that the third-party doctrine says, I can just get from the phone company, just like I could get the number that you dialed from a pen register without getting a warrant, I can get the data from the cell phone tower. And, and so before we get into more detail about both cases, I, I learned from Stephen Bobby's National Security Law podcast, mm. awesome podcast. I mean, there, there are a number of really great law scholar and practitioner right. podcasts out there yeah. now. And the National but Security Law one is a really good really one. Really good. So, so one thing I learned from there, they had a brief segment on the last show, is that, um, that both of these cases have come up to the Supreme Court without a circuit split. True. <clears throat> and uh, typically the reason the Supreme Court gets involved in a case, or, or a very important reason why it gets involved in a case, is the lower courts have divided in how to approach a particular problem, and the Supreme Court can provide the final answer. Uh, 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 and, and it's not just a reason. It's also that uh, for a complicated issue that's important, maybe you, know, you want a menu of options. And that's how you get better opinions. This is like a percolation you more, idea. You get more writing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You let things percolate for a while, uh, and uh, and reasonable people may differ in how they approach it. You get the benefit of all of those approaches if you wait and right. see what happens. Of course, it may never. They may never disagree. In which case, you don't need to get involved. I that's suppose. How, that's how the uh, Obamacare one cases were looking for a while. Right. But, but they wouldn't go up because there wasn't a split. Yeah. 
yeah, that there wasn't a split. And then all of a sudden the split occurred. Right, and, and then, yeah. because another reason the court takes cases, not that you, either you or I have worked there, but I, I, I understand that another reason the court takes cases is simply they perceive the issue to be of great importance. Yeah, they just want to, or, or a, a decision comes out on an important issue of federal law, and they're like, no, 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 right? <laughs> right. I mean, that, well, that's part of its importance, right? That they yeah. think, ah, oh, well, that's not what we want. Uh, that's not what we want in light of all of the things we know about how we approach statutes, doctrines, et cetera. So do you want to talk about Microsoft Ireland? Like, what's going on there? Should we get into it? I mean, what, what's, why is this an important, what happened? Well, um, the request made to Microsoft uh, was to turn over some data, uh, and uh, and I don't know enough about the case to know whether or not the person whose data it was that Microsoft was storing in emails, I think it was emails. I uh, think they had an MSN email account. Yeah, I don't know whether that the person whose data was requested was a U.S. national or not, and mm-hmm. it, that turns out to possibly be an important issue to, to think about in cases like this. Let's assume for the moment that that person was a U.S. national. Or U.S. person. A yeah. U.S. person, just to make yeah. it a little easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah uh, And so if the United States using this thing called the Secure Commu- uh, Stored. Stored Communications that, Act. That turns out to matter. It yeah. does. Yeah. Uh, Stored Communications Act, which is 18 U.S.C. 2703. Boom. Uh, it says <laughs> if the United States wants data from a service provider, they can get a warrant that is designed for this circumstance, give that to the service a provider. A defined in the statute. This Correct. is like a statutory warrant, yeah. not a, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and that person should hand over the information. Now, Microsoft, in response to this request for data, said, you know, we're happy to give you the data that we have that's stored on servers in the United States, but some of the data that you want, it seems, is on servers not in the United States, Ireland. For example, I think in this instance, that is where the servers were. Uh, And the United States said, well, that doesn't make a bit of difference, right? You're still you. You're still in control of the data. You have access to the data here in the United States. So sit down, type in what you need to type in, give us the data. We don't care where it's stored. Uh, And they made the argument to the lower court and the Second Circuit, and the Second Circuit agreed with Microsoft. Microsoft does not need to provide data stored on servers outside the United States. Why not? Well, part of it is parsing the statute, and the statute on its face does not reference the notion that data stored outside the United States should be given in response to a request. And there is a doctrine in federal law called the presumption against extraterritorial effect, which says if a statute doesn't clearly say it can apply to things happening outside the U.S., it does not apply to things happening outside the U.S. It's For a very to, good reason. Yeah, to, to avoid foreign entanglements and avoid foreign uh, anger of uh, other nation states. You know, keep our law here, let their law be there. Uh, and now the Supreme Court's going to figure out, is that the way we should approach that statute? How'd I do? That's, I think that's right. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's a good summary. And... Um, I, I don't. I, do you think? So it feels wrong, and a lot of the. Right, I mean, <laughs> what it, feels wrong? Well, that, that Microsoft resisted on that ground. Well, do you keep your data in the cloud? I mean, this is email, but more generally, like I keep everything either in Dropbox or iCloud. I use a combination yeah. of them. Like so, and do you know where that? Do you know where those data are? No, I, I have. Uh, not only do I not know, it never occurred to me that I ought to give much thought to where it is, right? So it's like I don't know, and I really don't care. Uh, because what I would hope is that it would be wherever it was most efficient for it to be. So that 
if there's competitive offerings of these services, I will wind up paying less for them because there's competition, drives price down to cost, hooray, uh, you can tell I teach antitrust. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so just put it wherever it's most efficient to put it. Now, you know, if I were doing something illegal, and to be clear, I, I'm... You're absolutely not. No, no, never. Uh, no, I'm actually not doing anything illegal. But if I were, <laughs> uh, then, boy, I'd be looking at servers in Ireland right now. I'd want to look at an ISP, or not, not an ISP, but a service provider of whatever cloud service I'm using, where the, the bits and bytes are stored on hard drives in Europe somewhere, where the privacy protections are a little bit stronger. Yeah, if the state that you're trying to resist providing that information to is the United States. Right. As opposed to Canada or Mexico or, or France or Germany. or you, it, So it's, it's not Ireland per se, it's not in the United States. And so people have written about this too, uh, in addition to the Second Circuit, right? There's uh, Jennifer Daskal, who's written about, the, basically this is nuts. Right, that, that data doesn't have a territory, right? And, and that's, and it's good that it doesn't, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's there are all kinds of efficiencies right. from moving data around. Uh, Google's model, as we'll talk about when we but get it, into. But it's also nuts to say it doesn't. It, it's, it seems to me equally nuts to maintain that it has no territory, right? Because data is not, you know, magical ghosts floating. It's, it's stuff on a server, and the server is in a place, and that place is in a nation state. Well, this is Andrew Wood's point, right? So these are the two poles, if we want to use them as, as just symbols right, right now. And, and Professor that, Schwartz in the paper talks about both of these other scholars yeah. and their work. And, so. and, and for, 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 for Woods, like data is always grounded somewhere. It has a physical, like you say, it has, yeah. a, it has a physical uh, manifestation somewhere. And I think that's hard to deny, uh, and, and it may or may not. Uh, it may or may not be particularly helpful in a given dispute because maybe the way you've created your, your system architecture is you send the data bouncing around to all sorts of multiple locations. Right. This is yeah. In which case, the fact that servers are in particular nation states, given how often the data bounces from one server to another, isn't particularly useful information to have. Right? Well, so that's really the question. Like, why... It's it, like no one denies that that data has a physical manifestation, right? It's not this like right. it, it's not like a soul, right? It's, right. It has has a physical quality, um, but the question is like why? Which aspects? Uh, which aspects of the physicality of data should matter at any one point? Like should it matter physically where the hard drives are that contain the data at an instant? Should it matter where control can be gained from? Should it matter where the person who collects the data is at a particular point in time, which is where things are kind of headed? And we can talk about, like, I don't even know why, well, uh, I'm not even sure that that, like, has this, everything is transient, isn't it? I mean, every, there's a transient quality, both to the people who are accessing data, like, who can move across borders more easily than ever before. There's a transient quality to the data itself. There's a transient quality to where, to where it's being uh, where where it's being maintained. Like you can have database managers who work in in uh, in, in New York, you know, maintaining servers in, in in Ireland or India or you know Virginia, wherever, right? Yeah, with the exception of I suppose with the exception, and I don't, I don't know the first thing actually about any of this technology really, but but it seems to me that that. With the, with the exception... That's your, that's your Justice Gorsuch moment. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> the, it seems to me that with, with the exception of, you know, I need a person to go actually pick up a physical thing and put it in a different physical place or flip a physical switch. With the exception of that stuff, uh, that uh, someone being in New York and doing something that affects a server in Ireland, well, obviously... 
Of course that's possible. And if that's the cheapest way to arrange things, not to keep coming back to that, but if it's the, that's the cheapest way to arrange things, that seems perfectly reasonable to me. So these are, right? there, there are two models we've talked about so far from the Schwartz paper. One is the, the localization model where my servers hold data in a fixed location. And I can choose that location. And you know, these days, it, you can choose any location. But the idea is that once you store a file, it's stored on, the, uh, on that server. That's where it lives yeah. until it's moved. And you can move it in the next day, I guess you could move it. Yeah. But the shard, and, and if you make yeah. the law, if you make the law care a lot about where that server is, that's going to encourage people to think different ways about where they put their servers. Depending on where their customers are Correct. and what their customers are looking for. Another model is the one, so that's maybe the Microsoft Ireland model. And Schwartz gives the example of, of Google's model, which is very different, the shard model, where the data is everywhere and nowhere. Well, it's never truly nowhere, but it, it stays for such a brief time in any one place that it's, you can't really say the data live there, right? Right. So Because you might may- fragment something. You might take a file and, and break it into all its little parts, and those little parts could be all over the place. Because you can reassemble them like that. Right. So. They can live in different places. So what do you, what do, you do with that? You know, that, that does, the, does it make sense to talk about a physical location of the data? It makes sense to talk about it because, of course, it does have a physical location. Right. But why should the law care about that? I mean, this is like first-year law school stuff, right? There are all kinds of distinctions out there. Like, this is what law students, like, get mixed up in in their first semester, really. Like, I, well, this is different than that, right? Okay, why <laughs> is that a difference that matters? Like, that's the question. Like, right. what are you trying to do with the law? And then why is this, why is this particular difference salient uh, for... For, for your purpose. And that shard model, as, as Schwartz describes, right, there's a case, the, a Google case about, about it, and it contrasts with the Microsoft case uh, because the judge's response, not an appeals court, a trial court, but the judge's response in that instance was, well, okay, so it sounds like what you're telling me is that if it matters a lot where the data are, um, we're never really going to be able to get them mm-hmm. because they're bouncing all over the place. So my reaction to that is I definitely don't care where they are. I don't want to care where they are. If I, if I care where they are, I can't get it. I want it. Therefore, I don't care where they are. Mm-hmm. I, I'm saying I have you in the courtroom. I'm in control of you as a person, Google. I can order you to sit down, type what you need to type into that machine to get the stuff to spit out here in the United States. So do it. So if it's, in some ways it's kind of curious that the Supreme Court took the case, and I haven't read a lot of commentary about it since the CERT grant, but everyone knows that Congress is working on a so-called fix for this, right? This to ICPA, amend this statute. Yeah. yeah, to amend for the first time in how many decades the Stored Communications about 30, Act. 30, yeah. Right, so like none of, this cloud com- none, not, none of these cloud computing models were even there uh, when the Stored Communications Act was passed. I don't know. Right. Was I using like a TI-994A when the store came out? I don't remember. Like I was, you know, there was early days. 1986. Early days. and I was 19 years old. And so everyone knows that, that there needs to be an update. And Congress is working on it. I think Orrin Hatch has the draft of this ICPA along with some other senators. And it would move from this like where's the data model to where is the person model, right? Right. And... And it does because, because yeah. the statute was written at a time when the answer to where is the data, um, or, or again, if you're being fussy like me, where are the data? Um, the the answer would be on that piece of magnetic tape right over there. I mean, that's the technology we're talking about. Right, and you had to deal with that person. Like, there's some there's some obvious like nexus between you and the data storage person. Maybe right. you'd want to deal with data storage people in your town, even right? Or or, right. It's, or we're talking about access on actually your machine, yeah. right? Not even a client server model. So. 
it, it, so we're going to shift to this idea of looking at where the person who's being targeted is. And if we know they're in the United States, so we're, we're, uh, there's a warrant out for, um, uh, to, a, to a U.S. cloud service provider. And if you're a U.S. person, you get the, you, you, the government gets those data. No, this, it's imp- it's, I think it's hard to talk carefully about this, um, and, and I keep hearing when you say it, and I know I'm saying it badly, too, when I say it, but I don't, it's harder to hear it. Um, the, That's just a way of saying I said it badly. Yes. Okay. Um, that that you, when you say targeting a person, right? There's two. There's two persons. There's the person whose data is in question, and then there's the person who's providing the storage service. Right. Right. They're both persons, and they could both of them could be in the U.S. Neither of them could be in the U.S., uh, or one could be and the other not, and it could be either pattern. So it seems to me that when you're talking about targeting and who's targeting who for what. Um, who, who's, whose data are we after as I, and who yeah, is yeah, storing right. it? As I understand it, what, what would be accomplished would be that a warrant to a U.S. provider, right, for the data of a U.S. person, you just get it, and it doesn't matter where the data are. Yeah, the statute would now explicitly say, without regard to where the data are stored. Right. You get it in response to a valid request. We've got a hand up over here. So the question is about how this interfaces with EU law and the rights of EU citizens. We're saying it again because otherwise it doesn't pick up on our mics. If the government is going to a U.S. provider to get records of a non-U.S. person who is not in the United States, then we move into this other category of things. We ask whether or not there is a certain kind of agreement between the United States and the nation in which that person either is or is a person, right? Now, those agreements themselves are in, are, seem to be going through some transition with this new statutory proposal, right? So the way, the way I understand things work now, there are these mutual legal assistance agreements, treaties, between countries that could be multilateral, could be bilateral, um, but the process for using them for, to go to another country and say, you know, we need data that, that are owned by a national of your country, um, it seems to be stored on a server controlled by a corporation in the United States. Uh, how do we make sure we're honoring their privacy rights but also get our law enforcement needs met? Right? And that gets filtered through that mutual legal assistance framework. It's very slow. And so the statutory amendments are also seem to be directed at trying to bring some focus to a law enforcement cooperation agreement that's more targeted and more streamlined so you can do those things faster. But what they can't get rid of, it seems to me, is if you want data that belong to a non-U.S. national, um, that other that person's home country is going to want to be at the table in some way. And if we, have an, if we have an agreement with them and they consent, then the U.S. law enforcement gets the, gets the data. And if they don't consent then it goes into that jurisdiction's legal system. If the question is, in theory, is it possible that a, uh, a citizen of an EU member state could go to an EU court and say, my home country agreed to something that, that violates my human rights under the EU applicable authorities for human rights. It sounds like, in theory, that argument could be made. I don't know how the European Court of Justice or other EU institutions think about the degree to which 
the home country that you live in has the ability, the, the capacity, to agree to things that affect its citizens or not. I, right? I, I don't know the details of uh, it. And, uh, and I don't know how you package that in the United States either. I mean, if, you, if, you, if, if the Senate ratified a treaty and that treaty provision were thought to violate one of my individual rights under the Bill of Rights, could I bring that complaint to court and have that, that uh, treaty provision invalidated? Yes. I, I mean, yeah, sort of yeah. that, ha that has, has to be, be the answer, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, but it seems, I, don't, I can't think of an instance of that occurring well, in, you, in, you recent, would, in the recent past. Ordinarily, anyway. you'd be challenging the provisions of the statute implementing the treaty, and you treat it like another statute. Yeah, but so, some treaties are self-actualizing. But I just want to... Self-enforcing. So the, the, the problem with, the, with this case is that like, either resolution is not great, and a statutory solution is needed, right? So if, if, right. This, if, the, if Microsoft wins, then you set up a situation where people can basically shop for privacy for some good reasons, I guess, but maybe nefarious reasons as well. Right. If and, Microsoft loses, yeah. then it seems like it, it doesn't, that we're not paying enough attention to where the nationals uh, of, where the nationals are who are customers of Microsoft, where they are and the interest the, their home countries might have in providing certain levels of privacy, which could injure businesses like Microsoft who are trying to make themselves palatable to customers all over the world. Right. right? It, it, and they're it, a U.S. company, but right. they want to have customers everywhere. And if we say, well, we don't care where your customers are, they have to live by U.S. law, well, that makes them less viable for some customers, maybe more for others. So it hurts U.S. competitiveness in the cloud market, for, right. and and also comedy. It hurts international relations. So, there, like, no solution here is a good one. No judicial solution. Right, and maybe the statute tries to thread the needle by encouraging these agreements between countries that will be workable, while at the same time uh, allowing law enforcement access to the data of U.S. persons without much thought, like without you know without going through too many hoops, other yep. than the ordinary warrant requirement. And of certainly, the legislative revision they have some tools at their disposal in rewriting the law, right, uh, that a court doesn't have. But I, I want to broaden it out a little bit. So I'm going to bring in the Carpenter case. And as I told you before we This recorded, is, again, the, the cell phone the, the tower cell, data the historic, case. Yeah, historic location data from cell phone pings. Uh, and at the same time, uh, I want to bring in the, um, the Wisconsin uh, redistricting case. That just we j I just talked about it in my Supreme Court discussion right. group last night. Gill against Whitford. Yeah, I this think. is one where um, uh, where where the Republicans in Wisconsin uh, gathered lots and lots of data and redistricted in this like Max Republican. Um, this is a reference to to the old Max Black districts that that mm. uh, Ginsburg brought up. This is like the Max Republican districting scenario where uh, under any conceivable scenario, the Republicans hold on to power for a long time. They were basically using like big data and number crunching. Right. Like it's a, you know, it's a bunch of... And in that sense, it's not unique to Wisconsin or Republicans, right? That anyone who's drawing legislative districts will right. have these data tools at their disposal. They'll have the data, where do the, how do the people who live in this location tend to vote, and how can I draw a line that captures more of that and less of that? So here's, right? here's the idea. Because it's all software driven. In the past, we have been able to rely on basically uh, inability, right? Uh, incompetency, uh, an, uh, an inability to predict the future, an inability to crunch. We've been able to rely on our, on our relative impotence on a, in a lot of uh, matters to achieve a social consensus that seems acceptable. So 
um, uh, redistricting. Yeah, a bunch of people, a bunch of legislators try to entrench themselves. Like that's since the founding this has happened, even though, you know, prevention of factions was one of the key design goals of the Constitution. Um, but that is, you know, the, the ability to create a perfectly uh, entrenched um, legislative majority for one party, like why is that not guaranteed? Because it's just a hard problem. Like how do you, you know, you try to district this way, you think it's going to be durable, but in fact not. Well, guess what? More data increases your ability uh, um, by, uh, to a great degree in order to accomplish that goal which undermines American democracy, right? So too, the cell phone uh, data. Yeah. Point, right? Like, data, data and computing power put together. Put together with techniques, et cetera, right? right? So, uh, and with cell phone uh, location data, right? You know, well, Orrin Kerr had this, these uh, posts on Twitter just the other night. Like, it's always been the case that the government has been able to observe you outdoors or in public places and to use that as evidence, right? I mean, this is just one of the costs of going outside and going in public is that you can be observed there by the government which it can use for its own purposes, so long as those purposes are otherwise valid, right? Yeah. And that, you know, is, that a, is that a restriction on privacy? Well, in a way, it is a restriction on privacy, right? Um, and, so, and, and you can say, as you think about the way in which that restriction on privacy plays out, you can say, yeah, people have to make choices about where they are and when they are at that place because this is a fact about the world. You, people can see you where you are, and, and that just has to be something you incorporate into your thinking about the choices that you make. And it doesn't feel like a big burden. Well, it doesn't right? feel particularly creepy that you might be observed when you're out in public. Yeah, you yeah. might be observed sporadically. Um, if the government wants to track you, right, and that does feel creepy. I don't want to be tracked. It's expensive for the government to do that, right? It's got to tail you with an actual car, with a helicopter, with devices, and uh, that, that, you know, older devices, right? right or, or at least it used to be expensive. It's right. been getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and that's the way in which the social consensus that reflects an equilibrium that existed before has been unsettled, right? right. It, it's the difference between saying, hey, I, you know, I saw you at the grocery store today. You're like, oh, I, I didn't see you. Why didn't you come up and say hello? And, like, I don't feel, boy, what a creep. But if you said, you know, I, boy, you left your house at 8.03 this morning, and, uh, and then you drove this direction, and then you did this, and then you went to the grocery store, and boy, how was that meal that you had for lunch? And, and boy, you left the office a little bit early. Suddenly I'm thinking, whoa, <laughs> there's right. a problem here, right? Yeah. You, like, this is, you are a creep. And because you know everything, because right? you know everything, you at very low cost have access to a total reconstruction of from when I woke up to when I went to sleep. And that is that's being known by another when you're not aware that they're knowing that about you in a different way, fundamentally different way so than just leaving your house <coughs> and walking down the street. So that's what historic cell phone uh, cell site location data can do. It can create a map of where you've gone all day, all the time. And. In a way, it's like, well, but you were out in public. You revealed yourself. Yeah, I did. But the technology has upset the balance. It used to be that it was hard to be able to track someone in a creepy way all the time. Now, Especially it's without their knowing that. about it. Yes. Now it's easy to do that. Right. It used to be hard to guarantee a legislative majority in perpetuity uh, by drawing district lines. Now it's not so hard. Right. It used to be, it used to be kind of... Um, uh, I guess the, the, what's the right way to talk about the balance in the extraterritoriality case, right? It used to be that we knew uh, that you knew that if you stored your data in a particular place, there was a certain, you know, you knew who could get at that and under what right. circumstances. If you think about all your, if you think of it as all my books and papers and correspondence in a filing cabinet in my house or in my desk drawer, and and who can see it and who can't, and on what terms and what I know versus right. now, where it's very inexpensive to get. If most people are storing a huge amount of their personal information in this 
thing, which everyone loves to call the cloud, um, it just makes me want to yell at the cloud. Because um, <laughs> you're uh, an old man. Because I'm old. Yeah. Um, so the, the, then suddenly it's very inexpensive and very easy for someone to get an enormous amount of information about you without your knowledge and to put to purposes that you may or may not have. And this was on. the key idea in the Riley case, too, the cell phone right. search case, right? It's where, where I think it was Justice Roberts, I'm trying to remember now, made a distinction between you know, the government being able to get a search warrant for a chest of, of objects or for, a fi- or, or for a desk full of papers. Like, okay, you know, government's always had the ability to, to search your papers. Uh, with, right. um, and this was without a warrant. Or if they're doing a pat-down and they find a piece of paper in your pocket, yeah, yeah, can they look at the it, paper? Yeah, right. of course, they look at the paper. This is What's search on the paper? But can they look in everything in your phone? Well, that's like your life This is search, now, in, search right? incident, in a way. Search incident to arrest, right? Yeah. I think it was that case. And... And, and if you can get without a warrant search incident to arrest of a phone, like you can see basically everybody's everything right? just by arresting them. So, so the, the more general point here is... So what do, and what do we do? Well, is that we have for ages been able to rely on just brute possibility, what is possible right. to achieve a, a viable social consensus about a balance between what we consider to be private, what we consider to be kind of decent behavior vis-a-vis, you know, vis-a-vis, but, but uh, uh, as, as balanced between the government and individuals. And in, in other areas, too, like the Wisconsin case shows. And the, the power of predictability changes all of those things. And now we have to put in place artificial constraints. We, we have to put in place rules where we used to be able to, to, um, to rely on kind of just natural limits, you know? Right. And this is true, and this is also true we talk about in insurance markets. Right? Yeah, Where right. the more you, you know, with genetic information, the more you know about a person, suddenly um, what used to be, like, we used to just be able to lump it under traditional risk-based insurance. Now we have to make a social determination to, uh, for, to use solidarity is the reason to spread costs. Because right? in this instance or in this cluster of instances, it seems like um, we're entering this period where uh, before we didn't have to decide whether to deny ourselves a thing we have the capacity to do because we didn't have the capacity to do it. So not doing it isn't something you have to make a choice about. And, and where but we now did. we do have the capacity to do it, so we have to decide, are we going to do that or not? And right? where we could make these predictions, it was in very like discreet, like brute ways. Like We know that older people are much more expensive to treat medically than younger people. Medicare. Right? Like, right. Like, so we made a choice to kind of do things differently when... To when create the, a different kind of risk pool with everybody being covered right. because we know it's going to be expensive. All right. So are these too many connections? I mean, a lot of stuff is connected. Everything is connected, as we know, Joe. But, <laughs> but I do think that's part of the key to these cases is, is, the, is the almost like lazy reliance we've been able to have on possibility has been taken away. Yeah. Right? And, and I mean, lazy is kind of judgy. I mean, you're not being lazy if it's just the way the world is, right? And, yeah, and what's lazy, As a former math guy, like, lazy is not a pejorative. <laughs> it is like, like you try, it's the engine of creativity, right? The yeah. desire to be lazy. Well, but I think of what's lazy is not realizing you're in the middle of a situation where, where you used to be able to rely on the fact that certain things just weren't possible. As a physical fact. And yeah. now they are possible, and so you have choices to make that you didn't used to need to worry about. If, if you say in, the, in confronting that, you say, well, I don't want to choose, or choosing's a hassle, or make, you know, someone else's problem, well, that's being kind of lazy, I think. Maybe and this is, I mean, it, it's not a totally original point. I mean, we talked to Warren Kerr on the show 
was it a year ago or two years ago? Yeah. I think Th 13 years ago. I don't know. It was a I long time ago. I don't think 13, yeah. I, it One was a long two. time ago. And he, it's a point about he had, homeostasis. He has this yeah. theory about balance, right? And that uh, as technology changes, uh, it, it upsets the balance between privacy and, and, and valid government interests. And that's when the law changes to kind of bring it back into balance right. again. Because right? what you observe, if you ask yourself, when have we been through this before? When have we been through situations where a change in technology produced a change in capacity that confronted us with having to choose whether to do things that before we simply couldn't do, so we didn't need to think about it, right? Uh, and um, I don't think he framed it in just that way, but, I, but, it, but it does seem relevant. So the historical example that he used in that instance, this homeostatic theory of the Fourth Amendment, was the advent of cars uh, compared to horse-drawn uh, modes of transportation. Uh, the speed with which they travel uh, the degree to which uh, they enclose in the way that they were created, the way they more reliably uh, and totally enclose objects to hide them from view. Right? So you've got this very quickly moving container. Uh, and we didn't used to have that. So what does law enforcement do in response to that new set of facts? What can police get access to? Under what circumstances can they get access to it? Um, what are the And what are the social sort of the social consensus that uh, forms around those expectations, right? And you, when you notice, you see, there's a bunch of law enforcement questions. Of course, there are also crime questions, like criminals look at that technology and think, ah, new opportunities, <laughs> right? So everyone's looking and saying, ah, new things are possible. What do I want to do? What do I need to do? And they're going to keep interacting to try to get to a set back to a set point yeah. where most interests are getting accommodated in a way that's socially acceptable. And kind of what I'm just thinking about, really just this is top of my head kind of stuff, but uh, I see it, it. I know, yeah. Uh, is is whether the the data revolution, I hate using those kinds of terms, yeah, you know, it's, it's gross. You know? yeah, yeah, but you but you, I got to do it. Yeah, uh, I, I hear it. Is different in kind, right? In in the way that it causes us to have to like specify our principles to a greater degree. Like, what is the interest in privacy really? Whereas it used to be maybe we could just kind of piggyback on expectations that had gone before. Um, you know, it used to be that, like, if I had a set of files in Germany, like, you just know, like, are they going to be able to get access to that? Well, it's, going to depend, it's obviously going to depend on German law to some extent, right? Right. But you now... But now, not so much. And I have to think, well, what is my interest in storing things internationally? What is my interest in my files? And is that, does that have anything to do with location? Does it depend on where I am? I mean, what if I'm flying, uh, I have a connecting flight in New York. So for an instant, I am, uh, uh, although not a U.S. person, if I'm a, a, a foreign country and I'm not a, uh, I don't have a, uh, an immigrant visa or something like that, and uh, just a transfer visa, uh, it, can they just grab all of my data the instant that I'm in an airport in New York? Like, I don't actually know what the, the doctrine is there. It seems to be that, that physical location under the, under the uh, proposed revised statute, that a lot would turn on that. Yeah. But it's not clear that a lot should turn on that as travel is right. less expensive. So and there's now this, this clash, too, it seems to me, that's, that we're either already in the middle of or is bearing down on us pretty quickly, that, that um, you know, the sort of uh, free trade international elite consensus, which is everything should just move in the way that's cheapest for everyone concerned, right? Um, and and the, the kind of practices that that might encourage, 
well, it shouldn't matter if you live in Germany, if the, if the person who's going to provide you cloud storage happens to be a U.S. corporation that runs a server in uh, Greenland. <coughs> Yahoo, whatever, who cares, right? Do what's cheapest. That's what's in everyone's interest. Um, th there's that. And then there's this, you know, people think that the laws that are going to affect them day to day in the most important parts of their life are laws that are going to have something to do with, like, understanding, participating in setting up, uh, talking to someone like an official in their government uh, when they are upset about how things are being done, right? Those expectations are not going anywhere. You can imagine some like automated trading where a where uh, the a company is bought and sold in microseconds and traverses the globe in a series of microsecond-based sales. Like so, even the location of it, like is it a is it a U.S. cloud provider? Well, it was a second ago, but now it is a Greenland cl uh, cloud <laughs> provider. Like, right. you know, who knows where this is going to go? And the Schwartz paper. Um, I think one insight it has is it can be helpful to talk about access to data versus owning and controlling the infrastructure on which the data are stored. It, those two things can be decomposed, and therefore the law might need to have another thing to keep track of, which is maybe the person who owns the servers can't actually access what's on them because yeah. the thing's been set up to prevent it. Right. I thought that was really helpful. I thought his distinction between uh, the shard model, which is like all the files are split up and traveling all over the globe at light speed in order to uh, in order to provide faster access and efficiencies and take advantage of cost savings and whatever else, whatever other reason you would have to move things around, and the localization model, which is I control it here, but it's all located over there, and then this trust model, right, where where I operate and manage things, but there's some other entity which is a trustee of your data. Right. And, and I actually, as the manager, I can't get to your data, presumably through all kinds of cryptography and other things, right? right? So I thought that was really helpful. I don't know as a, uh, um, a, a, whether practitioners have really thought about these, um, these possible differences in, in data model for whether it's a client you have who is interested in cloud computing or whether you are representing cloud providers and um, it's a new world, though, and I don't think the law takes account of these three models, which is why I thought that Schwartz's, one of the reasons I thought that Schwartz's paper was really helpful. Yeah. I hadn't really conceived it that way. I mean... I certainly hadn't either, no. For so. me, cloud meant cloud, and who knows what happens when it... Right. I mean, so, do we want to take some questions? Sure. Are there questions? There was a hand up there a while ago. Yes. We're, we're going to have to repeat them into the mic, so I apologize for that bit of clunkiness, but who, who has a question? Right, right back here. Yeah. Yeah, I, so, so the question goes to the way that... Um, uh, the technologies are pushing on our perception of our of ourselves and our place in the world by by noting that one way to talk about data is as your property, like like your papers and effects, right? Another way is saying that the data is a reflection of who you are. It is a part of your. I think the phrase you use is inviolate personality, right? So it is it is part of you. And depending on how you see it, you, you're going to just come to different conclusions about what we should do in the law, how we should structure society, whether we should pass, whether we should pass this new bill that Orrin Hatch is proposing right. or, or think of it in a different way. You, you, you can also combine them in the sense that, uh, for example, there's this uh, legal scholar, uh, uh, Margaret Radin, uh, who wrote a very famous piece called Property and Personhood. So there, there's a sense in which property can be put on a continuum. Some property we think of as not reflecting very much about us intimately as persons, um, you know, I, I bought a bag of flour or a bag of sugar versus some property that we think is very intimately bound up with who we are as individuals. If, you're, if you have a spouse and you have a wedding ring, my guess is you have an attachment to that object that you don't have to the bag of flour you bought at Kroger the other day. So it's all property in one sense, 
but some of it is very different because of its connection to our personhood. Well, it's definitely true. And I, I, as a property prof, I can't help but kind of interject. As you were saying that, I was just thinking that um, that our that, that our stories with property also change change that perception. So if I have a bag of flour, it seems like such a commodity. It's like, yeah, it's this one. It could have been another one. It doesn't matter which one it is. It's not me. But if you've got a bag of flour, I don't know why I would have this, but, but you put it out on a table and then you turn away and someone steals it, it feels like, you know, that theft feels like an injury to a greater degree than, you know, even though it wasn't part right. of yourself, like the story is that I had something which was like, which was mine, but now it was now it's been taken. And, and, and it's even more complicated because the way you feel about the flower, or certainly the way I feel about the flower, might differ from the way Hugh Atchison feels about the flower, right? He's got mm-hmm. a different relationship to food components because he's a chef who's very accomplished. And so, you know, the the you can look at different people and say, ah, what I what I expect them to react to in their property may or may not be so. And I think that um, is just magnified with data, because it, you know data can can be like the flower, like it can be like a, a save game and some game that I didn't even like very much, right? Or it could be, um, uh, it could be health data, it could be um, the only photo at my child's birth, like, you know, the, data has all of those same characteristics, right. I think. I haven't really so, thought so about it So thinking of way, it but, as yeah. property, I think it will, it can probably help you uh, analyze some facets of it, um, and it probably doesn't help you analyze other facets of it. Thinking of other, thinking of it in other terms might help in those other. We ways. didn't mention the Jones case, did we? The GPS car case. You remember this is this no, is. No, we, we did a little bit. You talked about tracking. And, I talked about and, tracking, but in terms of the cell site location. But but there was this case Jones before the uh, Supreme Court a uh, number of years ago, where the Supreme Court ruled that that it was uh, that you needed a warrant to put a um, uh, to to put a GPS tracker on a car. Right. Um, and, and the, the court kind of split on theories, and, and Scalia's theory was very much a property-based theory. Like, in order for the government to invade your property, like, it's got to have a warrant. This is, I'm saying this from memory, so I could be misstating exactly. Right. And I think it was Sotomayor's opinion, which said something like, uh, something qualitatively different happens when the government is following you around everywhere. The technology makes that possible. I think it was her opinion. And, and, in, and that, um, what's interesting is because they both object to warrantless collection in that case, but they might not both, of course, Justice Scalia's passed away, but someone who thinks like he does, a property-based approach, right, Right. might think getting the information from the cell phone tower um, doesn't impinge on your property in any obvious way. Therefore, no warrant is needed, or at least that argument wouldn't be there. Whereas if your theory about what's wrong in collecting all that information is it's this total intrusion of 100% of a person's activity, then you'd be bothered by both. It, it violates the anti-totalitarian compact that kind of underlies the Constitution. Right. Like you and have I think that that's view. what we're getting to, is we have to, we have to decide, again, what, what things are we willing to deny to ourselves as information about one another that it's quite obvious we could have if we wanted it. Right. Uh, because we're capable of having it. But that we decide, you know what, it's, that's not the kind of world you want to create. It's a matter of restraint now, yeah. Where like you said it didn't have to be. Purposeful restraint, or at least a restraint in a different way, yeah. like physical restraint. Now it's a matter of like just restraining you from something which is almost costless to do, right. which feels different. Is there another I, question? We, let's get a, okay. but before we do a question, okay. we've got a question right here, but before we do it, I also, this conversation has helped me realize truly, oh boy. here. Oh, boy. Um, I think this is part of why the, the, this, this 
era that we find ourselves in with technological change generating data-driven data capability and processing-driven capability. Um, I think this is why superhero movies are so popular right now. Oh, boy. Because, but, that, but it's working through exactly that, this issue, which is what, what do you do? What happens when suddenly the capabilities and capacities completely outstrip the way we used to think about stuff? You don't need to worry about dealing with invisible people when there can't be invisible people. What if now there can be? That would be awesome. <laughs> I think it would be creepy it'd be as hell. It would be problematic. It um, would be problematic. But, but, but it's, uh, superhero stories are all about this phenomenon. Well, so we're going to have to debate later about whether this is always a tension. Like, you right. know, is it new now? This is a typical kind of problem, right? right. But, all right, we had another but question. Let's turn though. to Paul. Yeah. But we, one can understand why... Um, nation states might all acknowledge that it is in all of their interests on a reciprocal basis to recognize uh, um, well-supported law enforcement requests from other member states because you want your request to be honored too. So you think, I'll do for you if you do for me, and we can come up with some baseline of what we think is a well-supported request. I think we because got that's a norm that different countries will probably have some different experiences with. We started a little bit late, but we got one more minute, and I know we want to probably get back on track. So, is there another question? Awesome. In an institutional sense, like so, the question is like, are, are these kind of new capabilities and new problems forcing new institutional solutions, or, or leading people to, or leading new institutions to grapple with these questions, or right. thinking? Uh, that they should. And I, I don't know. I mean, you know, in, in terms of the, the extraterritoriality case, I mean, a lot of the briefing, at least before the, on the petition for cert, was all about, like, should Congress decide these issues? Should you decide it now or should you wait? And, like, that's, I don't really have a good sense, and I haven't read all of the briefs uh, uh, the, uh, on, the, on the petition, as to, you know, what, what, the, what the argument for urgency was for the Supreme Court to resolve this with no percolation without waiting for Congress to fix. And, and so that's just a matter of my ignorance. The arguments, I'm sure, in there. And however it gets decided in this particular dispute, um, the, the fact that capital flows view countries and their laws as sometimes a facilitation and sometimes a hindrance seems to me going to, it, that's going to inform a conversation about how should we structure the, the, the laws around data storage, data service provision, right? Capital wants what it wants, which is always more of itself. Um, and, the heart wants um, what it wants. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and that, so that will be a pressure toward ensuring that legal frameworks don't stand in the way of that outcome. That's just one pressure, though, right? There are other pressures, too. And as I think, as you suggest with your question, we have to make choices individually about what, how we think that conversation should be conducted, right? All right, I think we've got to stop there because I think we're out of time. Thank you guys for being a, a good audience. Thank you. All right, I'm going to hit stop. Cool. That was good. It's great. Thanks, Joe. Thank you.